Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times in Bloomington. Today I have one guest in the studio, Lieutenant Colonel Kevin Eckstein with the Indiana National Guard. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348, or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Lieutenant Colonel, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thanks for, thanks for being here with us today. Um, I was asking uh, Lieutenant Colonel before we went on the air a little bit about how he got into the National Guard and how he's, he's risen to the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. So I think I'll just let him explain that to, to all the listeners out there. <laughs> Um, I ended up uh, entering the military through ROTC at Murray State University. Um, the active duty in the National Guard from a commission officer standpoint still have the same requirements from an educational uh, that they must uh, meet in, or- in order for them to stay and continue to grow in the Guard or even active duty. Uh, when I first entered uh, the National Guard, I was, I was stationed in Charlotte, North Carolina as a, a fire support officer, as a second lieutenant. And then became an, the XO as a first lieutenant for a service battery uh, as a battalion ammunition officer. Okay, so explain XO. Executive for... officer. Okay. Executive right. officer. Um, and then uh, following that, uh, I became a, a battery commander for service battery and then uh, ended up relocating here to Indiana um, with a civilian employment and ended up working on a brigade staff. The years through working on the brigade staff, you, you receive a lot of experience at the staff level, um, understanding how to uh, do a lot of planning and, and training and, and techniques and ta- tactics. Um, at the same time, became a field grade officer, uh, was put on a, a division staff as a G3 chief of operations, and uh, shortly after that became a training officer for the 750th Field Artillery located here in Bloomington, Indiana. Mm-hmm. And then uh, battalion commander. So, mm-hmm. twenty three, almost twenty three years, <laughs> and uh, grown up through the ranks, and had all the the difficult jobs that uh, and an officer's challenge to to uh, to conduct. Right, and and as he uh, told me before, uh, the lieutenant can, com, lieutenant colonel is is in uh, Indianapolis most of the, most of the time, but he's also the commander of the of the unit down here. So, uh, you get around the state a little bit. Yes, I, yes, I do. <laughs> yes, I do. Now, as the executive officer of eighty first Troop Command and being dual handed as battalion commander here, uh, we have uh, quite a bit of soldiers underneath the eighty first Troop Command that I'm also responsible for mm-hmm. on a Monday through Friday job. So, can you explain to to people like me and some of our listeners about um, you know, how these different terms, like a battalion versus the you know the eighty first Troop Command? How, how sure. do these things break down? Sure. Um, a battalion uh, actually would fall up under a brigade in the total number of man, 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 manning that the unit actually has. A battalion, it could be anywhere between 300 and 500 soldiers. Mm-hmm. At a brigade level, it could range anywhere from 2,500 all the way up to about 7,000 soldiers. Mm-hmm. Uh, a brigade has anywhere from three to five battalions underneath it, along with uh, special troops units uh, to allow it to to be a brigade, mm-hmm. communications, signal, intel, um, MPs, transportation, all those different type of units fall, can fall within a brigade. Okay. Now, how many uh, National Guard soldiers are there in the state of Indiana? There are a little over 12,000 National Guard soldiers in the state of 12, Indiana. 12,000. And there, how, how many units are there? How, how many places are they? Are, are there actual – are there armories in every county? There are 96 counties in the state, I Nin- believe. 92 counties. 92 counties. Mm-hmm. 92. And uh, there, are, there are a few counties that we do not have armories in. Mm-hmm. Um, the Indian Army National Guard looks at the, uh, the population – Mm-hmm. And, and uh, we try to focus our, our readiness centers around those, those centers of excellence for, for uh, population to recruit soldiers or warriors into the National Guard. Um, so there, there almost is a National Guard armory in every county in the, in the state of Indiana. Now, how many would there be in Indianapolis, for instance? Uh, armories in Indianapolis? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Right now in Indianapolis, you've got the Joint Forces headquarters, and there are um, two armories that are located that are separate from Joint Forces Headquarters. Okay. So um, – Three facilities. Three facilities. All right. 
Um, our guest today, Lieutenant Colonel Kevin Eckstein with the Indiana National Guard. If you have questions, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 or send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Now, in the 23 years you've been in the Guard, I would assume that there – well, I, you know, we, we know from what's happened in the last four or five years there have been a lot of changes in, in what's going on with the Guard. But, but take us back to you know, when you started with the Guard. How has it changed in those 23 years? The, over the 23 years, the Guard has changed uh, uh, quite considerably. When we first, uh, when I first entered the guard, I was a combat engineer, and we did our, we conducted our annual training, what we just called AT, at uh, Camp Shelby, Mississippi. Um, it was uh, ten consecutive days in the field training, um, and and a lot of exercises with uh, the uh, with the combat engineers and demolition, and uh, over the years, you've seen the training become more intense, and the evaluations. Uh, on the training to become more intense. When when we trained then, it was more towards the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Today, it's more towards ur- urban operations because of what, what presently is going on. Mm-hmm. So the training has changed considerably to meet the threat of what uh, the American forces might be facing. Right. Okay. I'm going to follow up on that in a minute, but we already have a phone call. So let's go to Stan on the phone. Stan? Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. I, I have a broad uh, observation, and that is... <clears throat> Um, given that we're talking about homeland security, national security, and some sort of coordination among the various law enforcement and emergency response teams and organizations, it seems to me that one of the things that will take a little bit of um, military and and political uh, willpower is standardized sources for fuel for vehicles. Uh, by that I mean, uh, for example, in the metro D.C. area, uh, uh, law enforcement units could obtain fuel from DOD sources. And, of course, DOD has their own contract sources. I would think this is a way of saving money for law enforcement, including National Guard, local police organizations, sheriffs, and so on. Uh, obviously, it can be complicated, but uh, but I think it can be made uncomplicated if there is a uh, a vision of it as a necessary coordination of, of uh, critical resource. Uh, that's it. I'd like your comment on it. Thanks. Well, um, when we, uh, back at two years ago, or a little over two years ago, um, when Katrina hit Mississippi, um, Indiana deployed a little over 1,200 soldiers to the state of Mississippi to assist with uh, uh, the emergency cleanup. When we did that, we, we also took fuel with us to be able to, to provide the emergency management organizations down there with fuel for their vehicles to be able to move about because of the shortage of fuel and the lack of power at the, uh, the gas stations or fuel stations to pump the fuel. Um, so in that respect, we do have fuel that they're able to use. It is a MoGas, what we call MoGas, which is regular gasoline, and then also diesel um, there are different grades of diesel in the military that we use, um, but as a whole, we were able to provide fuel um, for the emergency services vehicles that were there. Okay. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for the call, Stan. 855-0811-877-285-9348 and noon at indiana.edu. Um, in the, uh, the the changes you know, that we were talking about, uh, there, there's always been – you know, when somebody joins the National Guard, there's a, a particular commitment. Has that changed over time? No. Uh, actually, the, the commitment is still the same. It's always been. Um, there is a lot more pride today wearing the uniform than there was 20 years ago. Um, it's very difficult to go out in the community and, and wear your uniform without, you know, drawing a lot of attention. And it's all been good. It's never been anything negative mm-hmm. uh, in my personal experience. It's always been a thank you. Appreciate your, you know, your volunteering and doing the things you do. Mm-hmm. But there is a lot of pride in a, in a young female or male or a young man or young woman who joins the military. When they put this uniform on, they carry a heavy burden, and that heavy burden is the is the safety and the freedom of this country. Mm-hmm. So there is a lot of there is a lot of responsibility when a young man or young woman puts puts this uniform on, and a, and a great amount of pride also. So when uh, when a young person joins the guard today, what's is it a Two-year commitment? And no, then, it's, it's typically at least four years active. Mm-hmm. When I say active, four years active drilling and then two years in the IRR. But it's typically a six-year commitment. 
Um, and the same goes for the uh, Reserve Officer Training Corps or, mm-hmm. or a young man getting commissioned. Now, IRR is the Individual reserve? Readiness Reserve. Sure. Okay. All right. That's okay. I, I need to keep asking these questions. So, um, so the, the difference, it seems, today, obviously, is that 20 years ago or 23 years ago, I think a person who joined the National Guard had the expectation that they would spend their six years in the United States. That's my observation anyway. And you know, since what's happened in, in the war, that, that expectation has changed. Um, is that correct? I mean, well, uh, n- no. Okay. I, I I don't think so. Um, when I got when I got commissioned and you know wearing this uniform, I understood every day that I put it on that there was always a potential to go to war. Mm-hmm. There would always be a, be asked to go defend our our country and defend our freedom. Um, today, it is it is probably more of a, uh, a a greater possibility that a young soldier entering into this armed forces is going to be asked to go defend our country and defend our freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're going to be asked to do the hard job. Mm-hmm. It is not if you're looking for a place to just join and, and not um, be in the armed forces and, and, and possibly have to go and fight on another soil, then this is not the place you want to be. Yeah, right. Okay. We have a phone call. Let's go to Miriam. Miriam? much in the news lately about National Guards being strained in manpower and equipment because of deployment to Iraq, and I wonder whether that's true in Indiana. Ma'am, uh, I can tell you from the Indiana National Guard standpoint, we, um, we have soldiers and we have our equipment and we're prepared to defend or respond to any natural uh, disaster that would, uh, would occur here in Indiana. So it doesn't sound like you're concerned about that. Well, uh, there, there are always shortcomings, mm-hmm. but um, the National Guard has always been an organization that's been able to overcome those shortcomings. Mm-hmm. Um, last, last week or in the last couple of weeks, there was actually an Orange Century exercise that was done here that brought many Title X and National Guard soldiers together uh, for an exercise that uh, was a terrorist act that occurred on our soil and allowed us to work together to, for one common goal. Mm-hmm. Okay. So. All right, Miriam. Thanks a lot for the call. Um, I want to follow up on that in terms of, of recruitment. Um, the I, th- I think that the again from the layman's standpoint, um, you know, it seems as if the more the the likelihood that if you join the National Guard today that you're going to serve, you know, on a foreign soil, you're going to be involved in some sort of combat um, exercise would seem to to me to make the the idea of joining the guard different than it might have been 20 years ago. Uh, you know, as you said when you joined you knew there was a chance. But if you joined today, you know there's a very real chance. Yes. I mean a, a very uh, has it had any effect on the the numbers that are being recruited into the guard? Actually, Indiana has done very well in recruiting. Um, there's a like I said before, there's a great sense of pride wearing this uniform. And there are a lot of young ladies and young men who want to volunteer and wear this uniform and defend our freedom. Mm-hmm. And, and yes, there's been an increase in, in young, young people coming into the Guard uh, for the sole purpose of defending our freedom mm-hmm. and wearing this uniform and being proud for what they're doing to represent our country. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you look across the 54 or the 50 states and the, and the other territories that make up the, the National Guard, Indiana has always done very well in that area of recruiting. Um, there's been a great amount of emphasis put on that. And uh, we actually are in the top five in, in the country in recruiting, and we have been for the last two years. This may be a dumb question, but are there differences in the way that, that each state deals with their National Guard? Um, no, I, I think they all deal with them the same way. Um, it, they all work for the governors uh, for each one of their states, and it's pretty much the same. Mm-hmm. Okay. Again, 855-0811-877-285-9348 and noon at indiana.edu. Uh, our guest today is Lieutenant Colonel Kevin Eckstein with the Indiana National Guard. Now, you have had troops that work for you, work that you've commanded that have been deployed over – Yes, correct. Um, what, can you talk a little bit about that, the preparation of those soldiers uh, as, as, when they learn that they're going to be deployed and then what happens you know, in that interim period when they're getting ready to go? The, the, uh, once we were notified that, uh, that, that the unit down here in Bloomington was going to be deploying uh, soldiers, we immediately as a battalion started to uh, conduct uh, some mission analysis to find out um, what type of mission they were going to be conducting and what training it would take to, in order to prepare them for the mission that they were going to be conducting. We had... Uh, about six months of training 
prior to that unit deploying. And uh, they, were, they were tasked with going over to be a security force to either do convoy security, detention operations, or actually train Iraqi police. And uh, our soldiers were tasked with, doing, with training the Iraqi police. But that mission changed like three different times before they actually ended up getting deployed. And, and, but the training, the basis of the training is still the same. It's the warrior ethos and the warrior's individual readiness that you focus on. How prepared is a soldier to uh, maintain himself and maintain his equipment so that he is ready at uh, a moment's notice when anything occurs? Mm-hmm. Those soldiers really didn't have any downtime. It, 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 uh, they actually ended up deploying in October of, let's see, this is 2007. They, uh, they deployed in October 2005. Mm-hmm. And those soldiers, they're, they're, great, they're great citizens and great warriors and great represent, representatives representatives of, of the state of Indiana. And they, they were focused on what they needed to do. Um, they understood their left and right limits, and um, they were ready to go. Mm-hmm. They, they were ready to go and defend. So, uh, can, again, can, I'm going to ask you a lot of real basic That's questions because I'm, I'm really curious about this. But how, what kind of training goes into um, to trying to be able to train Iraqi soldiers, training to train other Iraqi police? And then what, what would, would have been what – what would a day have been like for people in that unit in terms of trying to train people to be police officers in, in Iraq? There uh, – you know, that's a good question. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that talking or having conversations with my leadership there, it's, it's basically just teaching the standardization and understanding what looks right and what looks wrong and how things should be handled mm-hmm. and making sure that, that uh, things are done in a repetitive motion day in and day out on, on doing their job. And I, one of the things that our unit did while they were in Iraq is they actually uh, – they actually adopted a center, a children's center for burn children, mm-hmm. and uh, our our family readiness group was sending a lot of a lot of supplies over there for the children and stuff. But the 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 soldiers were out there. They they were broken down into squads. They were actually shadowing the Iraqi police and training them on on uh, police operations. Um, and they they ended up building a lot of good relationships and doing a lot of good things while they were there. It seems again when you. You know, when I listen to the news on NPR, read the news in the newspaper, it seems like uh, there's a lot of pressure on those police officers. They're training the Iraqi police because they are they more than in the United States. A police officer in the United States is here. Uh, they're upholding the law. In Iraq, they're trying to uphold the law, but also they're targets of. They are targets. Yeah. Um, they, I guess, in some of the areas over there, they they are. Uh, they could be can be viewed as as the enemy because um, it's the American soldiers training them mm-hmm. to to be police officers, and uh, a country's not ready to 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 accept the, the Western views or Western ways of doing things, and that's mm-hmm. not the intent whatsoever. Mm-hmm. It's to it's to try to put some type of of system in place that. Uh, that allows the people to live a comfortable life day in and day out and not be threatened. Mm-hmm. And yes, those, those police officers are, are, are being attacked every day mm-hmm. along with the American soldiers. Yeah, seems very difficult. All right, 855-0811-877-285-9348 and noon at indiana.edu. The um, support that um, – I, I guess the question is about the support that that the guard provides for families of people who are uh, who are deployed. What kind of support network do you have? Um, each one of the units have what they call a family readiness group or family support program, and it, it is where you have um, an organization that represents and works for the commander who who is a soldier spouse, and and you have a president or a chairman and a vice chairman and a secretary and a treasurer, and and, and they put on programs for the other wives. Or family members who have a loved one who's deployed, um, they set up a network where they're keeping in contact with them through emails and, vo- and uh, phone calls. Um, if there's a need, like a, a washing machine breaks or the hot water heater breaks, you know they know somebody or they have a list of who's on that list who can repair a hot water heater. And uh, they're, 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 it's a great network where the wives come together on a weekend, and I say wives, it could be parents, it could be mothers, it could be fathers, it could be husbands, but they come together at one location and they share time together working on projects. 
that make time go by. Um, they also share information and, and, and try to keep up with what's going on um, here with the soldiers who are training and stuff that have not been deployed. And it, it, it ends up being a very close-knit group that depends on each other quite a bit. And um, my battalion, with uh, having the soldiers I had deployed, um, I, had f- I had four family readiness groups and a, and a battalion coordinator, and they work, worked very well together. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, you're going to have to explain this one to me. It says, from an Indiana Patriot Guard writer, mm-hmm. a tremendous thank you for your sacrifices. Well, yeah, that, that is an organization, a volunteer organization, and, and they may, may be a prior service, um, our, pro- our prior armed forces. They are a great organization. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a soldier while they were deployed that ended up getting getting killed. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we were when we brought him home and we did the, the the funeral services, the Patriot Guard was there, paying their respects and helping um, make sure that there were other organizations that didn't come from outside to interfere with us paying our respects for our, our fallen soldier. Mm-hmm. This comes from Kokomo, by the way. Yes, that's a great organization. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to follow up on that because that must be very difficult if you have a soldier in your command that, that is uh, injured or, or killed. Um, how do you as a commander deal with that? Um, it's not easy. It's, uh, it's very emotional and it's an emotional roller coaster up and down. Um, I went to visit this young soldier's mother the very next day after she'd been notified and uh, – spend time just trying to answer her questions because she had questions of why and what was going on, you know, why him and what were they doing and, you know, because um, when a soldier is over in Iraq, the last thing they want to do is talk about what mission they're doing. All they're interested in knowing is how things are going back home. And they're not talking about their mission. They're trying to get away from that time in place. And they just want to see how things are going. And we ask those soldiers to not talk about what's going on over there because you always worry about uh, security or operational security of what's going on. And, it, it, you know, could the enemy be, be profiling or tracking a soldier or, or looking at – can they predict what an American soldier is going to do? So, you know, you, you spend a lot of time with, with a, a spouse or a mother – and just trying to comfort and re, you know reinforce that you know we are family, we are there, we're, we are here to support you and take care of you, and and make that transition um, as easy as we possibly can, mm-hmm. to the point that even even to this day, I had a better commander that actually the commander of these soldiers who had, who went up and spent some time with her, mm-hmm. to explain what was going on, what all occurred, and, and try to put some peace to to this whole thing. So it's not an easy thing. The adjutant general is uh, very much involved in this where he actually meets with the family also along with the command sergeant major for the state. Um, with even over 1,200 soldiers, this is, this is a very, very tight family. Mm-hmm. And uh, whether you're, you know, you're married to a soldier or you're a spouse or a loved one, you're considered part of the family. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of, lot of effort that goes out to try to help with that pain and suffering that's occurring. Do you know how many soldiers from Indiana have been killed? Um, I, th- I think the number is actually 14 mm-hmm. um, soldiers from Indiana. There's a total of 87 Indiana, Indiana residents or ties to Indiana, but mm-hmm. uh, I believe it is 14 for Indiana Army National Guard. Okay. All right. We have another phone call. Let's go to Sally on the phone. Sally? Hello, Sally? Oh, I guess we lost Sally. Well, we'll just take a break now then. It's uh, halfway through the program, so we'll take a break. Let me remind you that our guest today is Lieutenant Colonel Kevin Eckstein with the Indiana National Guard. If you have questions or comments, you can phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home office and garage, using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2, owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. And from South Dunn Street Project, represented by Brian Lappin Real Estate, 
classic bungalow-inspired architecture in the Bryan Park neighborhood of Bloomington, www.southdunnstreet.info. WFIU News was recently honored with 11 awards at the Indiana Chapter of the Society of Professional Journalists' Best of Indiana Journalism competition. You can hear these award-winning stories, as well as find out what's going on in local news at WFIU.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg from the Herald Times. I'm uh, alone today. Mary Catherine is not with me. Uh, my guest is Lieutenant Colonel Kevin Eckstein from, from the Indiana National Guard. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. And you can send your email in to noon at indiana.edu. Um, we've talked a lot about Iraq already and, and I'm sure we will more before the program's over. But I want to get back a little bit more to uh, you know, domestic deployment and things that the Indiana National Guard does in the state and, uh, and you mentioned you got called to Katrina relief. Um, what kinds of things do you do you know, typically? If, if it wasn't for the war in Iraq, what kinds of things would the Guard be in, involved with? The Guard is, is continuing to train, its, train our soldiers um, for, the, uh, for the homeland defense and also for the the war abroad, um, so the the, the 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 focus of training is is the protection of our homeland, whether it uh, it be a tornado or hurricane or an explosion or a terrorist activity here on our on our home soil, and also preparing our soldiers um, with individual readiness to deploy them to. Uh, to Iraq, if need be. Mm-hmm. So, what kind of equipment? Uh, you know, I'm not sure how specific you can you can get. Do we have, like, for instance, in Bloomington, at the uh, armory? What's a, what's an arm, arm armory? A typical armory equipped with in terms of, of heavy equipment and things of that nature. The that the the unit here in, in Bloomington is a field artillery battalion, and uh, their their equipment is stored at the armory or in in a uh, in a chained uh, parking lot secured. Um, they go and they actually end up going to annual training in IDT weekends or weekend drills and uh, actually perform their artillery task. But they also are required to, to, uh, to train on their individual readiness, weapons qualification, um, MBC, Which n- nuclear, biolo- biological, and chemical attacks, mm-hmm. how to protect themselves, mm-hmm. and uh, first aid, uh, conducting first aid and uh, – that there's driver's training that occurs and uh, live firing with our howitzers. So they're, they're also tasked with uh, doing uh, tactical control points or movement control points um, so that they, they can do whatever mission they're asked to do. Mm-hmm. So, okay, forgive me if this is a bad thing to ask, but <laughs> I've always – I think typically National Guard has been referred to as weekend warriors. It was a, probably a, a, that's probably a really negative term, but it, it, I think it comes from the idea that people would be in their regular job during the week and then they would go and, and train on weekends. Is it, first of all, tell me, is that something I should never say again? No, that's okay. <laughs> okay. I mean, it, I've been been called that more than one time, and, and that's all right. Yeah. Um, I meant no disrespect. No, I know, I know you didn't, <laughs> and that's fine. Um, typically, a young soldier who gets in the National Guard, they will typically only drill two or one week in a month, and in two weeks out of the year. Um, and then they, they may be asked to attend a school, a professional development school. That has changed a lot. Okay. The op-tempo today um, could have a, a National Guardsman actually training more than just two days a month. Mm-hmm. It, could be, it could be weeks at time um, and it could be months at time depending on, on the type of training that individual needs. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the old commitment of just two days a week or two days a month – Two weeks a year, uh, that doesn't exist anymore in the National Guard. The up tempo is much higher than that today. Where are, where is the training? It seems like it used to be at uh, maybe in Michigan. No, that that's there's Michigan's Camp Grilling, but uh, actually a lot of the training actually occurs here in Indiana at uh, at uh, Camp Atterbury. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right. We have a caller on the phone. It's Dave. Dave. Hi. Hi, Dave. Uh, Go ahead. Mike. My question uh, concerns while on deployment, uh, we hear an awful lot about how much work and how much training has to go into uh, uh, the soldier's regimen. Uh, my question is, is what kind of time when on, on deployment 
do the soldiers actually have for recreational activities and what types of recreational activities would be available in a typical area, say, um, Iraq or something like that? Well, those soldiers, they're, they're first of all, we're, we're a soldier seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Um, and you think a soldier can go several days um, to do his mission, but a soldier also needs time to recoup and recover. And they are, they are, there are recreational activities that occur. There's basketball courts. There's basketball. There's volleyball. There's gyms. There's running, running uh, exercise rooms. There's running paths or running tracks. So there, there are things that they can do. They also, I'm sure, have got an Internet cafe so they can, on their time off or their time down, they can actually go to the Internet cafe and surf the net and send emails home and, and uh, talk to friends and, and stuff like that. So there is time, and, and uh, we do uh, we do want our soldiers to have downtime. Um, it only prepares them better for the mission because it becomes it, it, it can become a point in uh, their rotation. Um, if there's not downtime for recouping or, or recreational activities, then uh, and they're always on task. You worry about the stress that it does to a soldier. Um, so we we do provide those facilities and those the means for them to exercise and keep their 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 bodies physically fit and their minds sharp also. All right, Dave. Great, thank you. Okay, thanks a lot. I want to follow up on that too. What's uh, you know, I know you you've not been there, but you've talked to many many soldiers who have, and I'm sure you know what the the setup is. Um, what is it like for someone who's there? They live where are they living if they're in Baghdad or some someplace in in Iraq, and then when they're in their off hours, um, is it safe for them to venture out? No, typically no. Uh, the soldiers are actually um, living in a Ford operating base, and that Ford operating base, um, because of them being in Iraq, they're they're in a combat environment, twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. When they're down, they they have rooms or billets that uh, they can go to that gives them their peace of mind and their their own personal place to spend some time. Um, but they're you know they're just not released to go out into the public and stuff because you worry about their own safety and the soldiers are not going to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, they're on mission whether it's twelve hours or sixteen hour days. When they come back, uh, they'll have uh, an AAR, an after action review to talk about the mission today. What what happened? What occurred? What needs to happen tomorrow or the next time that they do the mission? What can they do to get better? Uh, that is an ever ever changing thing day in and day out. Um, but when a soldier comes into an operating base or, or, or a secure base and they're given downtime, they're, they're able to get away from it in some respect to the fact that uh, the, their surroundings that they're in, it, it's safe for them. But, you know, there's always a potential for, for a terrorist attack on an operating base. Mm-hmm. Okay. We have a phone call and it's Sally. Sally is back. Sally? Yeah. Hi. Uh, sorry, I got cut off the first time. That's all right. Thanks. Yeah. Um, I actually uh, wanted to just make a comment. Um, I started helping out with the American Red Cross uh, a few months ago, helping with their blood drives. And I've just noticed that the National Guard has been, like, an amazing help to what the Red Cross is trying to do in terms of donating blood and supporting our community locally. So I know that you stay really busy, and particularly, you know, in this time, the National Guard has a lot of things to do, but... I just wanted to say thank you for what you're doing to support us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. All right, Sally. Thanks a lot. I have an email that's come in. It's probably a little bit on the other end of the spectrum. Um, it uh, refers to the fact that you, you've used the phrase defend our freedom several times during the program. And, and the comment here is, but how is it that the, what the military is doing now in the Middle East defending my freedom when the only results I've seen from this war, higher gas and metal prices and increased attempts and threats of terrorist attacks. seems like the soldiers are only defending each other from some of the inhabitants of the regions they're being sent to. Thank you. Any comment? Um, No. No (laughs) no comment. You have the freedom of choice here to do and move move about freely. Um, Also, that war is not here on our soil. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there is a price to pay um, by taking the war or actually the war occurring someplace else other than here. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when we defend our freedom, um, you, you know, you're, people are given rights to do things that they normally wouldn't be given 
if we, this was not a free country. All right. Thank you very much for that. And we have a phone call from Bill now. Bill? Hello? Hello, Bill. Go ahead. Hi. I'd like to uh, make a comment in regard to the weekend warrior perception. Okay. Go right ahead. Um, I'm a retired sergeant major, and it's been my observation that once a, a person becomes an NCO, that is not uncommon at all for that person to put in um, time, unpaid time on their own. And, uh, well, I guess that's that's primarily it, and it goes all through their career. I know from personal experience also that during annual training, uh, those 14 days, that my first sergeant, sergeant major days, that I was lucky to average three hours of sleep at night. So those folks out there that are in the National Guard and Reserves, they, they put their time in, and they put in a, a supreme effort to serve in their country. They're not just there for drawing a paycheck. And that's all I have to say. All right, Bill. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. You want to comment on that? He's absolutely <laughs> correct. Um, when we when we go to train, we train hard and, and we work hard. And, uh, you know, yes, we're worried about and we're concerned about our soldier safety when we're conducting the training. But um, they, they are long days. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's absolutely correct in what he's saying because when I was deployed to Katrina, they were 19, 20-hour days with four hours of sleep. Mm-hmm. And uh, if I didn't get four hours of sleep, so what? It didn't matter because there was a mission to be done. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit more about that about that mission, about the deployment to, to Mississippi? Um, we, we were – Indiana was tasked with a JTF and a 38th Division to go down to, uh, to, to help uh, with the, uh, the disaster relief and uh, – 38th Division became the command and control for the state of Mississippi, working for the governor and the tag of Mississippi. And uh, our, our mission was to support the, uh, the first responders, mm-hmm. emergency management organizations. Um, and how, how do you do that? Well, you know, their prior, our, we're strictly in support of them. So um, whatever they need, we're, and we have the assets or resources to be able to do it, then we're, we're there to support them. Um, any governor, any, any governor will first utilize his own personal resources, um, emergency management resources, before they actually will ask the National Guard to do anything. But we ran um, ice, food, and water. Um, helped with uh, controlling intersections with military police, um, and, and also mo- removing debris to open roads back up. And, and uh, did some security operations also to assist the. The sheriffs and local law enforcement, um, while they were in time of need. Mm-hmm. How soon after? Take me back a little bit. How soon after the storm came through were you deployed? Down? When, um, I think we were down there within four to five days. Mm-hmm. Uh, it happened rather quickly after the governor asked for help or assistance from other states, mm-hmm. um, and uh, we were down there. Thirty um, Eighth Division, I think, was there right at thirty days. Mm-hmm. And uh, I ended up being down there a little over 40 days. And so how did that affect you? How did it affect me? Uh-huh. Uh, it, it's a job. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it necessarily affected me any from the fact that, you know, yeah, I was away from my family, but so what mm-hmm. at the time because the the the, uh, the citizens of Mississippi needed our assistance and our help. And we had we were focused on doing the mission and helping those those uh those civilians down there. Mm-hmm. I, I'm curious in terms of, you know, we, people don't see that kind of devastation very often. I know that you, know, you, you train and you prepare, but you know, can you be fully prepared to see that kind of devastation? I don't think any individual is ever fully prepared to see the type of devastation that we saw there in uh, Mississippi mm-hmm. or even in, in uh, Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that uh, the soldiers, the American soldier, is a very adaptable, very open-minded, and understands what it takes, and they're dedicated to whatever mission they're asked or tasked to do. Mm-hmm. I, well, again, I hope you don't mind me probing a little bit on the, your personal trip down there, but were there people that you met that you know, are just going to be memories for you that you're just not oh. going to forget? Oh, absolutely. There were, there, were a lot of, there were a lot of people that you came across down there um, that, were in, that were in need of help. And, uh, you, you know, you—, you t- you stop whatever you're doing to assist them and help them, and you know they thank you um, from the from the bottom of their heart for what you're doing and being down there. You know, yeah, we live here in Indiana, and Mississippi is a long way south, but um, there's a lot of memories by going down there. And I will tell you that uh, 
all the people that I come into contact down there were nothing but grateful for what we were doing and, and thanked us for being there. Mm-hmm. Okay, eight five five zero eight one one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight, and the email address is noon at indiana dot edu. We have about uh, ten or fifteen minutes left, about fifteen minutes left in the program, and our guest is Lieutenant Colonel Kevin Eckstein with the Indiana National Guard. I want to get back a little bit to homeland security because, uh, again, since nine eleven, that's been a, a major shift in our thinking. How's that? change the way training is done with the guard and the and the and your your basic readiness well uh, the training that's changed with the guard is more of us uh working with the uh the civil authorities the state emergency management department of homeland defense for the state of indiana uh, and making sure we understand how they do business so that we can support them and what they're trying to accomplish and conduct um the more interaction, and there have been a lot of exercises that occurred since 9-11 that have brought uh, all those organizations together for us to work together um, in, in, in situations and to, to accomplish a common goal. Mm-hmm. So, you know, our focus on homeland defense is our number one priority. Mm-hmm. Um, when I say number one priority, it, it is at the top of our list of, of training that our soldiers will do for, you know, for – for our states. Mm-hmm. How do you define homeland security? What kinds of things go into that? Well, it could be anywhere from a snowstorm to flooding um, to a hurricane or tornado. Of course, you're not going to get a hurricane here in Indiana, but a tornado. But you could be asked to go to another state to do that like we did in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it actually could be a, a terrorist act, um, um, a, a, a nuclear bomb, a, chemi- a dirty bomb, a chemical attack, all those, anything to do with, you know, protecting our homeland. Mm-hmm. And and it could be from uh, natural disaster to um, God-made disasters. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, the, um, the Memorial Day weekend is coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that affect you as a, as a soldier? Uh, you stop and you think about those soldiers who have paid the ultimate sacrifice mm-hmm. for our freedom. Um, they, they they have volunteered and they have went forward and 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 they have fought the hard fight and they've paid the ultimate sacrifice and those are the ones that we need to remember um, what they've done for us for us to have our freedom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Now back to to uh, some of the preparedness. I know you know we write about it at the newspaper some um, disaster preparedness exercises and, and things of the, that nature. And I, I think that the National Guard, I know you, you get involved in a lot of those probably with civil authorities. Yes. How do you sort of um, assess and evaluate how those, how those go? Well, um, you know, an exercise is planned. Um, a training exercise is planned. And at the end of those exercises and after action review is conducted, and, and both organizations or the civil authorities and the military come together and we talk about what, what happened, what should have happened, what did we do right and what did we do wrong and what, what do we need to do to do better in order for us to continue to get better at responding to these, these disasters or emergency preparedness. Um, some of them are tabletop exercises. Some of them are actually soldiers and civil authorities actually being on the ground at one given point in one, you know, one specific incident where they all come together to work together. Those, so. those are the ones we always write about. They yes. always make better pictures in those tabletop. Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so have you, again, how have those, those have, I would assume have, have, assume have changed over time because it, I, I would think 10 or 15 years ago we wouldn't have been thinking about a dirty bomb. Probably not. Mm-hmm. Um, since 9-11, more and more of those training events occur and uh, more and more people are actually – or organizations are coming to the table to make sure that we're all able to communicate and work together mm-hmm. um, and, and make sure that everybody understands their role of where, where they fall in, in, uh, in addressing the situation. Mm-hmm. Now, a couple of other topics I wanted, wanted to bring up. One is politics. I mean, I know that's not a topic that you're going to talk about much, but, but just in terms of, um, you know, sometimes the, the war, the – uh, the armed forces, military funding, all sorts of things get mixed up in the in the political debate. People on one side say one thing, people on another side say another thing. How does that affect you as you know as a soldier? My my number one thing is I've taken an oath um, to defend the United States here and our Constitution. And our Commander in Chief um, 
the President of the United States and our Commander-in-Chief here in Indiana, um, we follow the missions or the orders that are given to us. Um, our number one concern is soldier safety, making sure the soldier is taken care of and the soldier is, is cared for and the soldier is prepared and trained to do the job he needs to do. Allow those other political things of funding or equipment and everything else, allow the politics to, to figure that out or politicians to figure that out. We have a mission to do and we're going to do the mission to the best of our ability. Okay. Good answer to that. Thanks. Um, in, in another way, and again, I'm not sure how you're going to be able to answer this, but there are a lot of people who seem to be in um, – I don't know if they're in the military necessarily, but people who are in you know, preparedness like in the state of Indiana who will say it's not a matter of when we're going to have another terrorist attack to deal with. Uh, or, or if we're going to have another terrorist attack to deal with, it's just when it's, it's going to happen. Right. It's a matter of when. Yeah. So that's why we train train so hard. Mm-hmm. Um, that is truly one key to deterrence. When you, when you train and, and it gets out there, you being a publisher and representing a, a, a newspaper and you actually cover that and you, you, you put that on your Sunday morning paper or Saturday morning paper of a, a large event that occurred where civil authorities and the military came together – to respond and you show what they did, that that's a deterrence. Mm-hmm. And uh, the whole the whole thing is is soldiers preparedness, soldiers ready, civil authorities ready, and if something occurs, then we'll be prepared to handle whatever at whatever level needs to be done to to take care of it. Mm-hmm. Again, it seems like uh, you know in your 23 years in the service that you know things have changed quite a bit from what you believed you'd need to be prepared for 23 years ago to, to now. Yes, it is. It's changed quite a bit. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I want to give you the opportunity again to talk a little bit more about the soldiers that you work with and the, the qualities that they they bring to the table and um, you know how, how prepared you think they are to do, to do their job. Can you talk a, a bit about the people that you command? Uh, the, the soldiers that I command, um, they're prepared. They're, they're they're great citizens. Um, they're great volunteers. There's not a single one of them that, that does not want to be there. Um, and they're trained. We, we are committed to making sure that they are properly trained and equipped in order for them to do their mission. Um, I don't think anybody ever should be concerned that we're going to send a soldier to war that is not pop, properly equipped or properly trained to do the mission. Mm-hmm. Um, these are great volunteers and great American citizens. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I want to talk about being, you know, commanding the the whole role of a of a commander. I mean, I would I know that when you have a lot of people that you're responsible for, it's more than just teaching them how to do the job. I mean, they're, they're, individuals don't all learn the same way. They don't all um, react in situations the same way. Uh, you know, but you have a very strong, very heavy responsibility because you know, these people's lives are at stake. What's how, how do you, how do you what's your what's your sort of mission as a commander? Well, my mission is uh, I'm focused. I'm focused to make sure that my soldiers get the best training that they possibly can get, and that they they are training on the the best equipment that they can have to train on, um, and making sure that all our soldiers understand the training that's going to occur and what they should be getting out of it. Um, and making sure every soldier gets an opportunity to conduct that training. Um, I'm concerned about the soldier's wellness, his well-being. How is he doing? How is he doing personally? Is he going to school when he's supposed to be going to school? Um, are there any issues that, you know, that I need to be made aware of that you need assistance with? You know, a soldier will train as hard as you want him to train as long as you feed him and pay him. If you feed him and pay him, he's going to train. <laughs> <laughs> so do you, it sounds like you do get into a lot of uh, interaction with individual soldiers, just trying to make sure that the, that there aren't extraneous things going on in their lives and things of that, that nature. That is correct. I, I there are a lot of a lot of different techniques to leadership, and uh, I believe in getting out and uh, spending time with my soldiers, and, and getting to know them and talk to them. Um, another commander may look at it differently. He may be a hands-off type of guy, and he uses his staff to do all the training and planning and stuff, and he just kind of observes from a distance. But I'm a hands-on type of person, and I get in, and I, I will actually do the training with the soldiers so that they know that, you know, hey, hey here's a battalion commander that, uh, that does care about his soldiers and does care about what's going on, and he's willing to get out here and do the same things we're doing. Mm-hmm. You want, you want to uh, 
earn their respect, and the only way to earn their respect is do the same thing they're doing. Mm-hmm. Sounds like leadership in a lot of different areas. Yes. So you have some leeway to to sort of develop a leadership style. Yes, you do. Uh-huh. Yes, you do. Okay, good. Um, in the last couple of minutes, I, I want to again give you the opportunity to to tell our listeners out there what you know what you need from them. You know what is what do you need from citizens of the state of Indiana uh, in terms of um, you know support to make the National Guard operate as effectively as it can. I, I, I don't. I'm, I'm not. I'm not going to ask them for anything. Mm-hmm. Um, they're giving us their support. They're giving us their love. Um, I want to thank them for what they've done for us um, because it's them. The citizens of Indiana that are the are the volunteers and the organizations that come forward to support us and and, and all those soldiers and they come from all, all all facets of the of different families and stuff and and uh, you know I want to personally thank them for what they've done to support us. Great. Now you've re- you've been in the military twenty three years. You've reached the rank of lieutenant colonel, which is very yes, yeah, very 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 high rank. Yes. What's next for you? Um. Just continue doing my job. Uh-huh. If I continue doing my job and and uh, and uh, do all the things that I'm responsible to do, and uh, the military will take care of me, mm-hmm. and and possibly one day I'll make full bird full full bird colonel. So mm-hmm. that's been a goal. It hasn't been a goal until recently, until I made <laughs> lieutenant colonel. Because when I got commissioned, I said if I ever make lieutenant colonel, that's a pretty successful career. Mm-hmm. I'll be happy. And if they put me out, then I'm happy. Well, now my my uh, my goals have changed. Now they they can't put you out. Now they can't put me out. <laughs> I, I want to make lieutenant. I want to make full bird colonel. Right. Okay. So what what advice would you give young people who are thinking about a, a career in the military? They they need to understand what commitment is. Um, when you put this uniform on, there's a great burden and a great amount of responsibility to wear this uniform. And when you when you uh, when you're asked to go and train and be prepared. And you stand on that line with other soldiers, and you look left and right of you. You need to look and and be able to look at them with a level of confidence that you know what you're doing, that you're there to be with them and fight with them, or train with them, or do whatever it is. And they can trust you, and they can count on you. Um, because at times, the only person you have is the person who's standing right beside you. Mm-hmm. So you got to be able to count on them. Um, that young soldier, or young lady, or young man, when they put this uniform on and they raise their right hand and they take an oath, it's a pretty powerful oath, and they need to understand what what the words are that they're saying mm-hmm. and, and and what they're taking their oath for. And what rewards will they get? Um, we will educate them. We will train them. We will um, help them advance their career. We will give them a skill or a specialty that they can use in the civilian world. Um, we will give them um, value. Honor and duty, um, loyalty, and uh, and they get to be a great American citizen. All right. We're out of time. All I right. want to thank you very much, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Kevin Eckstein from the Indiana National Guard, for being here with us today. For my absent partner, Mary Catherine Carmichael, producer Catherine Hegeman, and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times.